Well, if you have a Bible with you, can I encourage you to open along with me to the book of James and to chapter 3, continuing our studies uh, in James' epistle here, and we come to begin the third chapter. So we are reading today then James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, beginning to read at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, They are guided by a small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come forth blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Well, for those who are left, uh, if you have your Bible, please do open with me again to James chapter 3, looking together at these verses 1 to 12. And just as you're doing that, let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your word, We see this as a a challenging passage to us, one that confronts us with the sinfulness of our tongues and the sinfulness of our hearts. It paints a picture that perhaps we do not like to look at. And as we gaze into the mirror of this passage, we maybe do not like what looks back at us. But help us, Lord, to live in conformity to your word and faithfulness to it that even the bits that challenge us, even the bits that prick us and sit uncomfortably with us, we cannot ignore. We must look at. We must see the high calling of the Christian life. And we ask that as you teach us from your word, so too by your grace you would help us to live in accordance with it. Amen. Well, when Moses first went to Pharaoh and told him to let God's people go, not only did Pharaoh reject Moses appeal, but as punishment to the children of Israel, he took away their straw, but ordered that they would still make the same number of bricks. They were to make bricks without any straw. And Pharaoh greatly increased their burden, and he set before them this seemingly impossible task. About 500 years ago, as Martin Luther studied the epistle of James, he didn't like what he saw. He considered James and the high calling it puts on the Christian life and thought it was a book that was all law and no gospel, all command and no grace. 
And this led Luther to say that trying to keep James was like trying to make bricks without any straw. It was this impossible task. Now, Luther later came to repent of that way of thinking. He realized, yes, there certainly is grace in this epistle. Because while James reminds us that we're not perfect, it points us to the Savior who is. But James certainly puts a high calling on the Christian life. And one of the areas of that is the area of the tongue. If you have an ESV, you'll see there's a wee subheading on this passage called Taming the Tongue. Taming the Tongue. And perhaps that sounds like an impossible task, a great burden. Who could do that? Well, as we look into the mirror of this passage, we're going to see just what the tongue really is. And we see how James calls it a fire, a world of unrighteousness and a restless evil. We might not like what looks back at us, but it is an important passage for us to consider. And so as we do that, we want to think about three relationships, really, three relationships to do with the tongue. First, the relationship between the teacher and the tongue. Second, that of the world and the tongue. And then finally, the relationship between the heart and the tongue. So we begin with the teacher and the tongue, because of course, teachers use their tongues. Now, a number of years ago, there was a lovely elderly Christian lady uh, told me when I was going forward for ministry that a minister needs two things, two vitally important things. If you want to be a good minister, you need these. You must be tall and you must be handsome. <laughs> now, I am fairly tall at six foot one. That's no disputing that. Handsome, perhaps, is more so beauty in the eye of the beholder. But is that it? Is that what you look for in a minister? Is that what you look for in a teacher? The great problem of PCI at the minute, we have more churches than we do ministers. We need more ministers, more teachers. What are we to do? Just accept more tall people. Maybe advertise in the modeling agencies, perhaps. And I remember when I applied to Union College to go for ministry, nobody ever brought out a tape measure. It was Alistair actually who interviewed me, but he didn't ask what shampoo I use, because that's not really what they're interested in. Really what they try to bring before you in the interview process, we might talk about three C's. Three C's, calling, character, communication. Calling, are you called by God? Not just you've taken a notion that you want to do this, but are you called by God to teach his word? Character, have you got a godly character? Do you meet the standards that the apostle Paul lays out in the New Testament? And communication, can you teach? Can you preach? That's what they want to know. And when we look at those standards, we look at that, we see why James then begins here in chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Why? Well, because you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. To be judged with a greater strictness. Now, that perhaps scares us. That gets our backs up a wee bit. What does James exactly mean by that? Well, he means that to teach God's word is a tremendous privilege. It really is, whether it's the minister standing in the pulpit, whether it's the Sunday school teacher before the service, whether it's some sort of ministry going on with youth or any age during the week. It's a tremendous privilege to open God's word and to share it with anyone. But it is also a tremendous responsibility because souls are at stake. And that is the issue here. James in this passage is sort of alluding to Proverbs 18 and 21. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Or even as Jesus puts it in Matthew 18 and verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, 
It would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. What we see here is that words have consequences. They can be life-bringing in the gospel or think they can lead to destruction through fatal error. Who then can teach? Well, we notice James doesn't say, not any of you should become teachers, but not many of you. There are some who should, and those who should teach are those who have been called by Christ. We see this throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul gives great emphasis to it on those who should be teachers, the qualifications laid out for them. But he tells us in Ephesians 4 and verses 11 and 12 that Christ gave teachers to the church. Why? For equipping the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ that is, the church. So those who teach are to be called by Christ. That's the need. And the ambition to teach it is a good and a noble ambition to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Those are good things, yes. But ambition can also be dangerous. Not everyone who wants to teach does so because they've been called by Christ. Some have their own motives. We live in a celebrity culture greatly infatuated by personalities or even on social media. It's all about having followers and influence and an audience who want to read and listen to you. And then there's standing up here at the front and there's a status and an influence that comes with that that's desirable to some people for all of the wrong reasons. And so they want to teach. Why? Not to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not to build up the body of Christ, but because they love the sound of their own voice. They are driven and steered by their tongue. Well, they ought to remember what James says here. They ought to remember that words have consequences. See, sooner or later, the message will match the motive. If you just want to garner a great following for yourself, you will do that. But as Proverbs tells us, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruit, and the fruit will be a stricter judgment. If you were here last Sunday evening, Alistair told us that the greatest need for the minister, for the whole congregation even, is godliness, is a growth in godliness. And somebody may be a very gifted and talented speaker, might be a very charismatic figure, but without godliness, if he dares to teach, he's doomed to fail. We all need to remember, as James says, that we all stumble in many ways, and in particularly through the tongue. We ought to understand our own limitations, really, as sinful people. And we see this particularly in the book of Isaiah and in chapter 6, in that great passage, if you're familiar with it. There is Isaiah. Before he's commissioned as a prophet of God, he has this vision of heaven, and there he sees the Lord seated high and lifted up upon the throne. And here's Isaiah, this good man, this respected man. And what happens to him as he's confronted with the holiness of God? He cries out, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. This man was to be a prophet of God. He's a good man. He's a respected man. But in the presence of the holy God, he's acutely aware of the sinfulness of his own lips. It's as if his lips are the most sinful part of who he is. And yet as Isaiah is to go out as a prophet, what does God do? But God takes the initiative to purge Isaiah of this sin, of these sinful lips. He takes a burning coal, places it to his lips. His guilt is taken away. His iniquity atoned for. And that's what any of us would, who dare to teach would need also. Not just the minister, but any form of ministry. If we are to open God's word, if we're to share it with another, we need that cleansing power from God. 
not just to have our lips cleansed, but to have our very hearts cleansed also. What we need is the work of the Holy Spirit in us to transform the heart, to create in each and every one of us a pure, clean heart. That's why you need to be praying for your teachers. Pray for them that they would grow in godliness. Pray that they would grow in godliness, that you would have godly teachers. Because you don't have perfect teachers. And if you think you do, you'll end up being sorely disappointed. No, there's actually only one perfect teacher for us. Verse 2 tells us that we all stumble in what we say. But of course, in Jesus Christ, we have the perfect teacher, the sinless teacher, one who controlled his tongue, who controlled his whole body, who never said anything wrong to anyone. In Jesus and Jesus alone, you have a perfect teacher. If you want perfect teaching, therefore, go straight to him. Get into your Bible. That's the only perfect teaching you'll find. Other than Jesus, you'll not get a perfect teacher. You might get a faithful teacher, and that's someone who will point you to Jesus rather than to themselves. But teaching is inevitably tied to the tongue. That's what James is telling us in verse 5. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. You know, something I've really appreciated when I've been in Rich Hill and I've been out and about visiting people, or at least I was until I destroyed my ankle, but I was driving about, and you can see the morns in the distance. Reminds me of home. You see the wrong side of them. You need to come to Kilkeel to see them as they're meant to be seen. But there they are in the distance. I've been a bit surprised in the last few weeks, as warm and as dry that it's been, there's been no big fires in the morns. It seems the last couple of years, there's always at least one big fire, big gorse fire breaks out, usually young fellas having a bit of crack, light up a fire. It's so warm, so dry, it just spreads rapidly, a great blaze. And the fire service, they can just about contain it. There's really very little that they can do. And it's an incredible sight in Kilkeel. You see the smoke rising, you see the mountains glowing at night. I wonder if you can still see it here, even though you're, you're further away. But a little spark, and it roars into this great destructive fire. The tongue is small, but it is capable of great things, great destructive things. And that's why any teacher whose teaching is not faithful to Christ and to the Word of God faces a stricter judgment. We see an example of this in history back in the, the second maybe the third, fourth century rather, there's a man named Arius. And Arius was a heretic. Arius taught a Jesus who was not truly God. Jesus was, in Arius' eyes, more than a man, maybe more than an angel, but not truly God. He presented a Jesus who could not save. And the descendants of Arius are still about today. If the Jehovah Witnesses come to your door, they are Arians. That's the teaching that they believe, a Jesus who cannot save. But Arius was a very clever man. He was gifted with his tongue, so what did he do? Well, to try and spread his false teaching, he put it into song. And he'd go down to the harbor, and he'd go down to the ports, and he would teach these songs to the sailors. And as the sailors went from port to port and harbor to harbor, they carried with them this false teaching through these songs that they had learned. And before long, the whole of the Roman Empire had been set ablaze by this false teaching and this heresy. We say heresy is maybe a very strong word. We're maybe on the lookout for heresy. We know if someone like the Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses come to our door, they're teaching us a false Christ. But the tongue can perhaps be even more destructive in the sort of subtle errors that we're maybe not as prepared for. Think of it this way. There's maybe a minister. I don't think you'd get it in this church, but there are many churches where it happens. A minister who's very well-liked, well-trusted, charismatic man. And he stands at the front and he says something along the lines of this, that if you just have enough faith, 
you'll be all right. Just enough faith, and you'll never get sick. Enough faith, God will make you well. You don't need to go and see the doctor about that thing because you can essentially just believe yourself better. And that is a very common teaching that you'll hear. It's not a true teaching. You'll not find that in the Bible. But it's destructive. It's just one wee line, maybe, that the minister says. But it sets a great fire and a family and a life and a church. And it can be so, so destructive. Why? Because you think of that teaching and you follow it through. Well, I don't need to go and see a doctor. I can just make myself better. If I have enough faith, God's going to heal me. Till the healing doesn't come. And what's the conclusion? Well, you clearly didn't have enough faith. You weren't praying hard enough. You're not a very good Christian, are you? What a dreadful burden to try and place on anyone. A dreadful burden, a totally untrue teaching. And yet, churches all across the country, they come out with that sort of thing. And people believe it because they just trust the minister. And it's absolutely devastating. It causes so much damage. The tongue is a small member, but it boasts of great things. It sets a forest ablaze. Here's what we need to do. When you come into this church, come with your Bible and open it up. And test every word that I say against that Bible. Don't just trust me because I'm standing up at the front and I'm wearing a shirt and tie. Read it for yourself. Test every word. Get into God's word. Find the perfect teaching of Jesus Christ. We need to be familiar with our Bibles if we're to avoid the danger and destruction of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Is there a greater contrast than that? The tongue can bring us life in the gospel. It can bring us death and fatal error. It's a small member, but it boasts of great things. And that's the great contrast of the tongue that we see in the teacher. We see that same contrast in the world. The tongue can be life-bringing, or it can be totally destructive. Think of our second point here this morning, the relationship of the world and the tongue. And we see that relationship maybe very clearly if we look back to the Second World War and think about really the contrast between Hitler and Churchill. Two radically different men, and yet in many ways very similar men. People look at Adolf Hitler and they wonder, how did he get the following he did? How did Hitler ever rise to power? How did he seduce so many into following him? But then you read the testimonies. You read a history book from the time. And it seems that any time Adolf Hitler got behind a microphone, there was something captivating, something magnetic about him. People were grasped by him. And just as a very small rudder steers a great ship, so the tongue of Adolf Hitler steered that nation into destruction. He brought death, death to millions, through the power of the tongue. And then you maybe look at Churchill. And certainly he used his tongue and said plenty wrong, but he did great things with it also. There's Britain on the brink of defeat, on the brink of collapse. And then these great speeches of Churchill get broadcast over the airwaves. You know, and think about this, we'll fight them on the beaches, that famous speech, where I have nothing to offer but blood, sweat, toil, and tears. And all of a sudden, the nation is is galvanized to be able to stand up to resist the Nazis and to go on and ultimately win that war. And in many ways, the power of Churchill's tongue was life-bringing. What a great contrast we see there. What a great contrast we see in verse 9. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Is there a more extreme contrast than that? You know, you come here on the Sunday morning and you're, you're singing and you're praying and you're using your tongue as you ought to use it. And because it's a Sunday on the way home, you get stuck behind a Sunday driver. And um, well, that's frustrating, that's irritating. 
and maybe something slips out of your mouth that ought not to. Well, that's not really what James has in mind when he says cursing here. He's not maybe thinking of those four-letter words that none of us ought to say. Cursing is a sinful attack on those who are made in the likeness of God. That mankind, every man, woman, boy, and girl is made in the image of God. That is the basis for human dignity. But when we sinfully attack other people, when we curse them, we rob them of that very dignity. The tongue can build up or it can destroy, and there's nothing so destructive as the tongue. Think about what James calls it. It is a fire, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it is set on fire by hell. Why? Well, the tongue is one of the devil's most effective weapons in disrupting and attacking the church. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, destructive not only to the one who speaks, but to the one who has spoken off or spoken to. And it is a world of unrighteousness, that every form of evil that exists in this world can find expression through the tongue. We think even of the Ten Commandments. We so often treat that as the mirror into which we look to see how we're doing, don't we? Think how the tongue applies to the Ten Commandments. I've already sort of thought about the first two. Those who teach, not because they love God, but who want to elevate themselves and their own tongue over God. Or even like Arius, who used his tongue to create a false god, an idol, and proclaim that. How easily the tongue can take the Lord's name in vain. Or the Sabbath day meant to be a day of rest, but the tongue is a restless evil. It doesn't take a day off. The tongue dishonors father and mother. Maybe it lies to them, or it criticizes them, or it says things to them that they certainly never taught us to say. There's murderous rage. That finds an expression through the tongue threatenings and cursings. In fact, it is when rage takes control of us that we have least control of the tongue. No two people ever committed adultery in silence. They started talking, maybe small talk. Should have ended there. At some point, it turned flirtatious. And as the rudder steers the ship, so the tongue steers the whole body. The tongue robs and steals. You say, how can a, to a tongue do that? Well, if you're a very slick con man, maybe you could rob a bank with your tongue, but more than likely, the tongue will rob a man of his reputation through gossip and rumors and slander. And that's one I think we find particularly in the church itself. There's a woman I know, she seems like a, a very friendly woman, always taking a great interest in you and other people. And she'll tell you things about other people and she'll tell you this, you know, not everyone knows this, but I'm telling you this so you can pray about it. Well, does the other person really want me to know about it? Do I need to know about it? No, I maybe don't. And I remember telling my dad one day, I've been talking to this woman, and he just said to me, and my dad's a very good judge of character. She's dangerous. Dangerous. And that's a strange word to describe a person, but he was right. Gossip, slander, rumors. So, so dangerous. It bears false witness. And a little rumor is like a spark that blazes into a fire and destroys a forest. A little rumor, a little bit of gossip, destroys a name, a reputation, a life, a family, a church, all gone. Even coveting. We covet because we want what someone else has. We become envious of them, of their possession or their possessions. It breeds a bitterness in our hearts that then finds expression through the tongue. We try and criticize that person and tear them down at every opportunity. No, every form of wickedness and unrighteousness in this world finds expression through the tongue. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we do all of these things and more to those who are made in his likeness. And it doesn't surprise us when we see the tongue at work like that in the world, but 
Are we surprised when we see the tongue do these things in the church? Because it happens here too. James is writing to Christians. He's writing to the church throughout the passage. I think he maybe says it three times. My brothers. These are his brothers. Why does he need to say this to his brothers? Because he himself has found these things to be so in the church. That's why in verse 10 he says, My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It ought not to be so. I shouldn't have to tell you this, but he has to write to them and tell them this because it's there. And is it here? It may well be. James calls us to live with consistency. These things ought not to be so. We're to be consistent in our living, in the faith we profess and in the faith we express. Not just consistent on a, on a Sunday and then living different Monday through to Saturday that we speak a different way. That's not it at all. But the Christian is to be consistently different from the world. That means we use our tongues one way on a Sunday in church and the same way at home or at work, or in school, or in Asda, or wherever we might be. There's a consistency to it. Because notice where James is coming from. He's coming from the end of chapter 2, where we were last week. And James 2, faith and works. You know, I will show you my faith by my works. That's all about consistency in how we live. Consistency. See, if I say I'm a Christian, but I do not live like a Christian, or look like a Christian, or act like a Christian, what conclusion will people come to? It is a matter of consistency, and the same consistency applies to the tongue. If I say I'm a Christian, but I don't speak or sound or talk like a Christian, what conclusion will people come to? I profess faith, but every time I open my mouth, it is evident to everyone the faith I profess has no impact upon my tongue. What conclusion will people come to? In fact, maybe if James were writing this today, he wouldn't even focus so much on the tongue as on the thumb how people use their thumbs today on their phones, on social media, or in text messages, group chats, whatever it might be. People say the nastiest of things because they think it's just between me and this other person and no one else will see it. Or in a fit of rage, they type something up on social media because the thumbs work faster than the brain. And then they realize what they've said and they go on to delete it. And they think, whew, got rid of that. No, you didn't. It's out there. It's like the toothpaste coming out of the tube. You can't take it back. Somebody's seen it. Somebody's got a picture of it. There's a record of it somewhere. How we use our tongues, how we use our thumbs. What does the world think of it? See, the world likes nothing more than to point at a Christian and to say, hypocrite. So don't give them the ammunition. That's what James is telling us here. Look there at verses 7 and 8. We know James loves to use images and illustration. He says, every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Perhaps as we look into the mirror of this passage, it feels hopeless. Who among us can tame the tongue? Surely it is to just make bricks without any straw. It's an impossible task. Well, just as we need to pray for our teachers that they would grow in godliness, so too we ought to be praying for ourselves that we would grow in godliness, to say, Lord, make me a more godly person. Help me to use my tongue in a godly way. Even turn back a page, how does James begin this epistle? He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God for it. Now that's in regard to trials. We need wisdom as we face trials in life. We also need wisdom in how we use our tongues, to say, Lord, grant me wisdom in what I say and in how I say it. Or maybe we think even of the fruit of the Spirit, you maybe learned that wee song. Jeff and I were discussing this wee song during the week. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and 
What comes last? Self-control. That is the great need. Lord, grant me self-control. And by self-control, I don't just mean the sort of resolve that the world would call willpower, where I'm just going to try and do better. You know, I'll have this swear jar, and if there's less in it this week than there was the week before, that's an improvement. I'm doing better, aren't I? Well, that is to make bricks without straw. It'll last for a while, but it'll never succeed. No, what we need is not just a change in behavior, but a change in heart. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to transform our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would be the very rudder that steers the ship of our lives. There's a familiar theme that you hear in testimonies, particularly those of maybe men who've worked in a factory or a building site, something like that. So that after they came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, what's the first thing, the biggest thing people notice about them? It is a change in the way they speak. Maybe it's the language they use. Maybe it's the way they talk about other people, their humor, their whole conversation. Something has changed. It's not just their behavior, but it is their heart. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in them, beginning to to grow and to show forth this fruit of the Spirit, this self-control and godliness. And you know, that is our great need here today. It is a change in heart, not a change in behavior, but a change in heart. And that's the final relationship we want to think about just briefly together, that of the heart and the tongue. Jesus says in Luke 6 and 45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's what James is saying in verses 11 and 12. Once more, there is a consistency. Fig trees do not bear olives, they bear figs. Why? Because there's a consistency in the root and the fruit, in the heart and the mouth. Whatever goes into our hearts comes out of our mouths. Taming the tongue starts with guarding the heart. Have you ever heard a wee child say a bad word? It's a strange sort of a sight, but it happens from time to time. And what's the response? You say, well, where did you hear that? Or who taught you that? Because the child didn't learn it themselves. They've heard it somewhere. And they've soaked it in. They've taken it in. And you get this with Christian people who every so often they say something and they almost shock themselves that they've said it. They think, where did that come from? Can't believe I just said that. Maybe it comes from the 40 hours of the working week in a workplace where that sort of talk is just commonplace. But you think, well, no, I'm on guard. I know when I go into work, that's what I'm facing. I'm equipped for that. Well, maybe when we come home from work, we let our guard down and we just stick anything on the TV and sort of settle in in front of it. People are very conscious about what they consume. I have a friend at college, he counts his calories, he scans the barcode of everything he eats. He's very conscious about it. He wants to see the nutritional value of everything. I imagine that just sort of sucks the joy out of life, but that's the way he is. (laughs) We're very conscious about what we put into our bodies and what we consume. But are we so conscious about what we put into our hearts, into our minds? the things we read and watch and listen to and how we consume them, we think, well, I have a filter for all of that. A filter's only so good until there's that much filth that something begins to seep through. Or it can even be in the company we keep. You surround yourself with people who gossip and you will become a gossiper if nothing more than just to fit in so they don't gossip about you. Or you sit with people who all day just moan, groan, criticize and try to tear down others. And you'll find yourself very quickly being guilty of the same thing. It's maybe a little cliche to say it, but if you have nothing nice to say, better to say nothing at all. That might be some practical wisdom for us, but at the end of the day, it only deals with the surface. It doesn't get to the heart of the issue. And since the problem of, well, 
the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. It's a change in heart is really what we need to go to the very source, not to the tongue itself, but to the very source. That with King David in Psalm 51, we can pray, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Because that is our great need. Oh, to have a pure, clean heart. When we look at the Gospels, there's one particular episode in the life of Jesus I find phenomenal. It's just before he goes to the cross. Pilate hands him over to be interrogated, to be questioned by Herod. And here's Jesus. He's been beaten, betrayed, mocked, spat upon, stripped. Here he is, and now Herod has all these questions for him. And what does the Bible tell us? Jesus answered him nothing, that he opened not his mouth. I couldn't do that. I couldn't sit in silence in that moment. I'd have to say something. But Jesus, a perfect man, total control of his tongue, total control of his whole body. And yet we are not just interested in Jesus as a sort of moral example for us to follow. No, we come to Jesus as the sinless Savior who alone can deal with the problem of sin in the human heart. And so if you have sinned with your tongue, and as we look into the mirror of this passage, we see that surely we all have. Since you have sinned with your tongue, you can find cleansing in the cross of Christ. If you are struggling this day to tame the tongue, you can find power to help in the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you are resolved from this day forth, not only to guard the tongue, but to guard the heart as well, you may find the grace you need in the cross of Jesus Christ. Anything else is to try and to make bricks without any straw. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew our right spirit within us. Let us pray. O Lord, those words of David, his great need is our great need too, that you would create in each of us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us, that as the heart is the source of the tongue, so we might have clean hearts, and that by your spirit those hearts would be guarded, guarded from the filth and the corruption of this world, guarded, Lord, in such a way that there would be a consistency in those hearts and in those tongues. Tongues that sing out in praise to you would be tongues of blessing and not of cursing. We all stumble in many ways. We struggle to control our tongues, to tame them. We need your grace to help us, O Lord. We turn to you now and to Jesus Christ, our sinless Savior. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.